right, so check this out. Today marks the uh, series finale uh, for uh, We Value Authentic Community. So we've been doing a series of messages as we've been recasting vision. We've been revisiting the mission uh, and the vision and the culture of City Church. We said a number of things that are important about who we are as a church, our unique DNA, our unique blueprint. We said, number one, we are gospel shaped. That means the word of God informs everything we say and do and think. We don't leave it up to our opinions. We lean implicitly and explicitly on the word of God to be the compass for our Lives. That means the Word of God, what we find in the Word of God, has the final say for everything that pertains to life and godliness. So we've settled that once and for all. In fact, Smith Wigglesworth said it this way. If God said it, I believe it, that settles it. So we are a gospel-shaped community of faith. Not based on our preferences, not based on what's easy and comfortable and convenient for us, but on the truth of God's word. Second thing we've said is important to City Church is that we're not only gospel shaped, but we value authentic community. Amen? We value authentic community. In fact, the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, anchor text for the, the uh, series has been Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42, where the scripture says uh, that they continue steadfastly the apostles' doctrine. That's the word of God and fellowship, koinonia, koinonia, which means close association, it means community. It also means communion. It means joint participation, everyone doing their part. It also means intimacy. And so what we're building here at City Church is a culture where authentic community thrives, where we can be genuine and authentic and we can take off the mask and feel safe without our masks. The truth is Sunday morning has become a masquerade ball. You're in the room with a whole bunch of people. You're not even sure who you're standing next to because we see a version of that person, but it may not be the true, unedited, unscripted version. And so when the scripture talks about hypocrisy, it comes from a Greek word that means to wear a mask. Because in Bible times and even later on in medieval times, even during the era of William Shakespeare, women were not allowed to perform on stage. So they would have male actors who would wear masks. Long before Medea. <laughs> Come on, somebody. And this idea of hypocrisy means to take off the mask. And so if we're going to be an authentic community of faith, we have to create an environment and create a culture where we are willing to take off our masks and be vulnerable and transparent without fear of being condemned or judged because you took off the mask. So to that end, we've been examining these one another statements, all right? One another. What does authentic community looks like, look like? And we discover that in these 13 one another statements. Now, again, here's the test. That phrase, one another, appears how many times in the New Testament city church? 116 times. Somebody been listening to the podcast in Jesus' name. And those 116 one another statements can be placed in these 13 categories. By way of review, we've covered these 11. We said where there is authentic community, people will love one another. And not just love one another, but the word we examined was where Peter said, love one another fervently. It is the picture of stretching. 
And when we love one another fervently, we stretch. That means the love of God that is expected and required of us as Christ followers is the kind of love that will stretch us beyond our comfort zone, beyond what we're willing to do naturally. It will compel us to do a little bit more than is easy, comfortable, and convenient. Because where there is authentic community, people will love one another fervently. They will stretch in order to serve another. Number two, we said... Pray for one another. We talked about that extensively, but this is what we also said. Uh, the scripture says, uh, bless those who use you and pray for those who uh, despise you. It's one thing to pray for somebody you like and somebody who likes you, but in our invitation to stretch, the scripture also calls us to pray for those who mistreat us. Because it does something, I like to call it open heart surgery. It forces us to have a healthy heart when you start to pray for people who are misusing and mistreating you. So when we say pray for one another, it's not just for people we get along with. It's even for the people that we have struggles and tension and conflict with. In fact, that word that's used in Mark, bless, is a Greek word, eulogeo, where we get the word eulogy. It means to speak well of. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying when you have a situation where you have an enemy or someone has mistreated you, speak well of them. I have done a, well, I was going to say a million, but I have done a ton of funerals, and I have yet to see anybody get up there and perform the eulogy and say something nasty or evil about the person in the casket. We all know that the person in that casket wasn't perfect. Yet when we deliver a eulogy, we speak well of them. Yes, when the scripture says pray for one another, you know what it's saying? Say speak well of those who mistreat you and pray for them. Oh, oh, here's number three. Build one another up. Find a way to edify someone, to encourage them and build them up. Give preference to one another. At the beginning of the year in February, did a series called You Before Me. That is essentially the, what love looks like when we begin to prefer others before ourselves, where we stop thinking me first and we start thinking you before me. That's the way Jesus did it. In fact, I love what Jimmy Evans says, and I think this is the key, one of the keys to successful relationships and successful marriages. Married folk, listen up. Jimmy Evans says it this way. He says one of the most potent keys to a successful marriage is understanding that marriage is about two servants in love. Mm. Two servants in love. I serve you, you serve me. Because we learn to give preference to one another. Uh, receive one another without judgment, but openly with hospitality. And I shared some stories about what it looks like to have an open heart and an open hand, even to strangers. Do not judge. Do not judge one another. And my wife, I mean, knocked it out the park on that one. Number seven, forgive one another. And we said that forgiveness is a gift that we give ourselves. Because you've heard the old adage or the old proverb, unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person is going to die from it. The only person that dies from the poison of unforgiveness is the person who holds on to it. So if a church is going to be healthy, if a body's going to be healthy, we've got to learn to let it go. 
And by forgiving the person, you're not excusing what they did. You're not saying what they did was okay. I wish I had time to get into that. Number eight, be of the same mind toward one another. Number nine, be patient with one another. And we said being patient means learning to move at somebody else's pace. Ah, that was good, wasn't it? Because that could be frustrating. Because some of us have patience issues. That in order for me to move from point A to B, I got to wait for you? We don't like that. And sometimes patience means learning to move at God's pace. We want it now, and God says, you ain't ready for it. Sometimes the waiting is about preparing, getting us ready for the next level so that we can handle it responsibly. In God's timeline, Abraham waited 25 years for the promise. Joseph waited 13 years for the promise. David waited 14 years for the fulfillment of the promise. So patience is learning to move at someone else's pace. It is also giving others room to grow. No, we want people to change now, but then we want them to give us time. Okay. Number 10, comfort one another. And number 11, have peace with one another. We talked about that. Sometimes peace is on the other side of war. Isn't that what Sean Connery said in First Night? Sometimes peace is found on the other side of war. Come on, somebody. Pastor Ray got skills. Come on, somebody. But this is what we also said about peace. Is, look, sometimes you can't, you, you can't have a tug of war if somebody lets go of the rope. You got to also ask yourself, is this the hill I want to die on? I'm talking to married folk now. Most of us spend our entire marriage dying on the wrong hill. Selah. Just think about it for a second. And so today we're going to wrap it up with two, the last two, uh, which are, uh, what are they, baby? Serve one another. And confess your faults to one another. Okay? Y'all ready? Y'all ready for this? Don't, don't, don't. Okay. I'm in that zone this morning, man. Y'all might get a remix before the service is over. Amen. I feel one coming on in Jesus' name. Fantastic. So that's review. Let's pray and we'll look to God's word. Father, we thank you for your precious holy word. And Lord, we ask you now to speak to us as only you can. Take our lips and take these voices to communicate the very mysteries of God to your people. Father, you know exactly what we need this morning. And I pray that what we say, what we teach, what we communicate this morning will not just be empty words. They will not just be eloquent words, but they will be life-giving words that you will speak to each one exactly where they are. We trust you now, God, to open our eyes to see. We thank you for your promise that the entrance of your word gives light. So we thank you, Lord, for the entrance of your word into our hearts and into our lives to make us better, the people that you created us to be the very best version of ourselves. 
We trust you for that now, Father, in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. We've got two left. And then the series is over, so it's kind of bittersweet. But this is our series finale right here. Serve one another. Somebody said you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. Long before Bob Dylan wrote the song, y'all, the scripture said the exact same thing. So notice what the Bible says here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 10. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. Check this out. We're also broadcasting on Facebook Live. Facebook Live. So just go to our page, share that, so as many people as you know can hear this word. We're getting hits from uh, Dubai. Jennifer was in Dubai, one of our church members who lives out there with her family. They watch online. Brooks and Chastity from India. We've got... Uh, uh, in India. Indiana. Loud and wrong. Brooks and Chastity from Indiana. I said India. It might be. Okay. In Jesus' name. All right. Florida. A bunch of different places. So just click share on that Facebook live feed and share it with your friends on social media. Uh, also, we have our notes available on version. Many of you follow along on version and you archive our notes so you can revisit them. Uh, so we encourage you to do that as well. I think the instructions will be on the screen for how you can access our U version notes. Serve one another, serve one another. This is one of the ways we build authentic community in the local church. First Peter chapter four and verse 10 says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let me quickly exegete the text. Number one, Paul writes, as each one has received a gift. That means everybody in this room right now under the sound of my voice has been endowed with a gift from God. Everybody has something to give. And it is a gift of God. Number two, it says, minister that gift to one another. There's that one another phrase. Take what God has given it and use it in service to someone else. And number three, it says, do it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. You know what that means? Whatever God has entrusted to you, he wants you to manage well. I still remember Deion Sanders telling the story of growing up and how he and his friends would go and play ball, they would practice till late in the evening. And at night, they would all be scared because they had to run past the cemetery to get to his house. And Dion noticed that he could outrun all of his friends. And he realized, man, I'm fast. I can use this to my advantage. Millions of dollars later, Dion is doing pretty well. What did he have? the ability to run. And he took that ability to run and cultivated it and developed it and used it to his advantage. Most of us miss out on what God wants to do in us and through us because we're fixated on what everybody else has. We say to ourselves, I wish I could sing like her. I wish I could dance like him. Yet the power of God rests within us. And we ignore the gift that God has placed in us. Let me, let me tell you something about the gift of God that is in you. Number one, you've got to discover it. You've got to know what you're carrying and what you have and what you already have been endowed with. Because the scripture says, as each one has received a gift. Number one, you have to discover it. 
Number two, you have to develop it. Because everything that God gives to us, he gives to us in seed form. He never gives us anything fully developed. That means you can have a gift, a talent, an ability, and it can lie dormant, or you can discover that gift but never develop it, and it, can, it will never bring any return or fulfillment in your life. Number three, you've got to deploy it. After you've developed it, you have to use it in service to others. That's three D words. I'm going to give you three more. Let me give you three more. Can I give you three more D words? It starts with a decision. Everything in life starts with a decision. If I have this gift, if I have this ability, what am I going to do to help somebody and change somebody's life? But the second thing is, after I make the decision, I have to discipline myself. How many of us have made a decision to start a workout program and quit after three days? The decision alone is not enough. The decision must be followed with discipline. And the reason most of us don't develop the gift is because of the challenge that comes with discipline. And let me tell you why most of us stop early. Because discipline isn't comfortable. It's not fun and it's not pleasurable. But if we will discipline ourselves to do the things we don't want to do. In fact, Emmett Smith said it this way. He said, champions are made in the off season. When everybody else is gaining weight and partying. That's when champions are made. Because they discipline themselves. And if I don't discipline myself to do what is necessary, I will never get to that third D, which is delight. If you discipline yourself long enough and stay with it long enough, that workout thing that used to be so frustrating becomes something you cannot live without. Say, man, I missed my workout today. Man, I'm going to make up for it. Because what used to be a, what's the word I'm looking for? What used to be dreadful has now become a delight. So I'm talking to a room full of people who carry dreams, God-given dreams. I'm talking to a room full of people who have tremendous potential to change their circle of influence. But the scripture says, as each one has received a gift, he has to minister it to somebody else. That gift is useless, whatever gift you have. It is useless until you make a commitment to use the gift in service to somebody else. Y'all miss that. The gift I have is useless until I make the decision that I will use this gift to serve someone else. I spent a little bit of time in corporate America. I wasn't in sales. But in all the training seminars they would send us to, this is what they said. The most successful people in sales are the people who are able to go into an organization not trying to sell the product, but to identify pain within the organization that they're trying to sell to. Most people don't succeed in sales because they come and they tell you all about your, their product. This is what this product can do. These are the new innovations. This is a new technology. They never stop long enough to sit there and simply ask, what is the pain, the struggle, the challenges you're having in your organization? And if you can sit there with the decision maker long enough for them to say to you, these are the problems we're having. And then as the salesperson, you say, this is how we can solve that problem. 
this is how this product that we have can remove your pain. The whole power of sales is service. Hey, buy my product, buy my product. No, 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 no. How can I serve and help you? And that's where most of us miss it in life. We say we have this tremendous vision and we want for the vision to be self-serving. When the vision that God places in our hearts is because there's someone else on the other side of our obedience. Everything that God has given us, he has given us because he has someone else in mind. In fact, when God created you, he created you to be the solution to a problem that exists somewhere else in the world. I want you to stop and contemplate that for a second. I am God's solution to a problem that exists somewhere in the world right now. The world doesn't exist to serve me. The world does not exist to serve me. So the question then becomes, how am I serving my family? How am I serving my wife? How am I serving my children? Uh, how am I serving my employer? Am I only giving what is required of me and nothing more? Do I clock in at nine and clock out at five? Because when you begin to study the word of God, you will examine. You will, you will notice that the people that God promoted and used were people that gave their best even when there was no promise of promotion. It speaks of motive. It speaks to motive. Joseph, the scripture says, was a slave in Egypt, but he was a prosperous man. Talk about an oxymoron and a paradox and irony. How can you be a slave away from your family and still be called a prosperous man? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because David served someone else's vision. Listen to this. He was in Potiphar's house. Joseph was in Potiphar's house. And the scripture says Joseph served Potiphar with such distinction that Potiphar did not even have to look into anything that Joseph did. They said the only thing that Potiphar touched had to do with their food because Egyptians and Hebrews were not allowed to sit and eat together. So the only thing that was Potiphar's responsibility or the responsibility of the Egyptian servants was Potiphar's food. But Joseph was a slave though. And he took such care of what belonged to someone else even when there was no promise of promotion. Joseph had no promise that one day you'll get out of Egypt. One day somebody's going to rescue you. One day you're going to somebody. He had none of that, but everything that was placed in his hands, he did with such excellence that he couldn't help but rise to the top. Listen to me, listen to me. People who serve others cannot be kept down. The fixation is not the promotion. The fixation is, if I'm, am I giving my best right now where I am with something that belongs to somebody else? And that's where most of us miss it. And Jesus said it this way. The first thing he said was, be faithful with that which belongs to another man. Because if we're not faithful with that which belongs to another man, how will God give us what belongs to us? The qualification for, for you to step into your purpose and destiny is how faithful are you in doing what belongs to somebody else? And, so, and not just the church, it's also secularly. 
if you read Genesis 24, yeah, let me, let me pull up the breaks. Maybe I'm going, I'm going to take a breath so you can jump in in a second. You got Genesis 24? Genesis chapter 24. We talked about Joseph. It's not just a man thing. But in Genesis 24, man, it's a beautiful story about a young lady. You going to tell us about that? Tell us about that. Because, again, we're created to minister the gift that God has given us as good stewards. Listen to this. Good stewards. A good manager of what God has entrusted to us. Because God requires, he will ask all of us to give an account of what we did with what he gave us. Everybody in this room, including me, will give an account for what I did with God, what God entrusted to me. Remember the guy who sat on the one talent he had? Let me, let, let, I'm going to let you talk in a second. Yes. <laughs> I promise you, baby. This is where most of us miss it. God rewards faithfulness. Think about this now. Most of us have compassion on the guy who had one talent. Because the one talent he had was, listen to what happened, it was taken away from him. This is Jesus teaching and he says, this is how the kingdom works. Notice the guy who had five talents, because he was faithful with the five, was given five more. The guy who was faithful with the two was given two more. The guy who was unfaithful and just sat on it, notice the guy who did the least did the most talking. Go back and read the story. The guy who did the least did the most talking. And listen, listen, listen to what God said. He said, you wicked, you wicked servant. Called him wicked. You know why? The scripture says in Proverbs, whoever is slothful in their business is brother to him who destroys. Oh, 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 oh we don't like that one. That's, that's not where we shout. That's the Bible. If I am slothful, unreliable, unfaithful in my business, the, brother, the scripture says you are a twin to a destroyer. If you don't take what's given to you seriously, you are equivalent to someone who is tearing it down. And so this is what we say. We say oh, man, I can't believe it. That guy only had one talent. And he's just sitting there. And look at these other people just doing well. We talk about it, the rich get richer, poor get poorer. We talk about that, don't we? And we miss the whole point. We miss the whole point. That sometimes the rich get richer not because they have an advantage, it's because of their diligence. It's because of their diligence. And God rewards diligence. And most of us say, well, well why you take that man one talent from him? Because God expects a return on his investment. Ain't nobody in this room got money invested after a year, come back to their broker and say, what you do with my money? Oh, I just sat on it. What you going to do with that? You're going to take it from him and give it to somebody who is going to multiply it. So we can sit on what God has given us all day. And there will come a window of time when that thing will expire and those opportunities will expire and it will be taken from you. And there's somebody right next to you that will. If God could tell Moses, you ain't going into Egypt. After 40 years and say, Joshua, you're going to take these people in. Hold up. God, Moses led these 2 million people for 40 years. You're not even going to let him get in the promised land? No, no. Josh, Joshua going to do it. 
So we can sit on what God has given us and be self-absorbed and miss our moment with God. And just like Moses, there are going to be some people in this room who will sit on the borders of Kadesh Barnea after 40 years and see somebody else take the people in. Be faithful. Give it your best. And do it when nobody is looking. Do it not for the approval of men, but do it because it is, it is the, because it, it is the right thing to do. And the story you're going to tell speaks to that. Amen. One thing before I tell the story, if I don't want you to hear that, oh, God is unjust. Oh, God is so mean. Oh, why do I need to serve this God if, if I don't, if I'm not perfect, if I don't just do just right, then he's going to do something bad to me. One thing we have a responsibility to tell you is that you have a responsibility. God did not create us as robots, and he's not being unjust. I'm glad you used the example uh, of the broker. It's not. We have what the talent represented money, and so talent wasn't just like a singing gift that they wouldn't sing or playing gift wouldn't play. It was the master entrusted this to the servant. As a servant and wanting to do well for someone else, he should have taken that and seen how he could have multiplied it, even if it would have just been multiplied by one more talent. It's saying, I'm not going to be selfish. The posture, the heart of that servant was, I know my master is harsh, so I'm just going to hide this in the ground, and when he comes back, I can just show him, I didn't lose it, see, I have it. It wasn't that he just didn't know what to do. He had a very ugly heart toward his master. And it was one of those things, especially when you're married, we can play tit for tat. Oh, you know, uh, he ain't take the garbage out, so I'm not cooking. I, I know we're not that petty, but that's just all I had. <laughs> that's not a real life scenario. No, it's not. It's not. And we can, we can get into that tit for tat. Oh, they didn't call me. I'm not going to call them. They didn't click like on my picture on Instagram, so I'm not going to like their pictures on Instagram. So the posture of the servant's heart toward the master was already wicked and disrespectful. And I wanted to go over that so we, don't, we can check the posture of our heart toward God. Some of you may have been believing to be married for the last 10 years. We've got Tracy Antonio just coming up, and you can have a situation where you can say, that girl just come out of nowhere, and now she's just getting married. See, I just, I'm trying to go to church. I'm doing the right thing, and it's just not working for me. The posture of your heart. What is it that you believe? Do you believe that God is mean, unjust, petty, and picks and chooses? And that is not who God is. So we can't go into explaining that. But I just wanted to give you that background information. Because sometimes we can hear just one side of the message. And it, it, I, in the past, have heard one side of a message. And it has kept me in bondage. I, could, I have left services thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? I've been one that felt sorry for that one servant until you study it out. He said, oh, my master is harsh. So that could be equivalent to... Uh, when I worked at DSW, we were in Bible school. I thought I was just going to be working at DSW, doing the shoes and everything. 
Well, the company had a decision and the manager came and she said that we would have to take turns cleaning the bathroom. Oh my Jesus. The posture of my heart, because I come, my grandfather was a custodian, my great-grandmother was a nanny and, and kept kids, and I had another grandmother that worked at one of the universities. I made sure I got my degree, didn't have any babies out of wedlock, so I was, my mom was single, so I'm not throwing shade on single moms, bless you. But these were the things that are going through my mind. I followed the 12 steps to being a good little girl so I would not have to clean up after other people. When they told me, we're going to take turns and clean the bathrooms, I thought I would lay a golden egg. I was like, I have a degree. I'm just doing Bible school. I teach school. I didn't sign up to clean the bathroom. I didn't say that out of my mouth. That was, that single situation was the defining reason why I married Ray. And this is why. So we weren't quite dating yet, but I call him as after Bible school. And I call him. I was like, I can't believe we're going to have to clean the bathrooms. They don't even have rubber gloves. And it's not like just a bathroom at somebody's house. You got to clean a public bathroom and all the germs. And I'm just like having a fit on the phone. Again, we're not dating yet. And this is what his, he said, do you have a Bible near you? I was like, a Bible? And he said, yeah. He said, here. Turn, turn to First Peter, and he said, and, and then go back over here to Matthew. And I, I still have those sticky notes, so I'm writing it down on a sticky note. And he went over these scriptures with me about even if the master is harsh, do it. Then he busts out with some Martin Luther King. <laughs> he said, there is a story that tells that Martin Luther King, in one of his sermons, he says that if you are a street sweeper, sweet, sweep streets in such a way that when you die on your tombstone, they say, here lies a great street sweeper. And so what that taught me when we did start dating and when he asked me to marry him, is that he would be a man that would follow the word and he would not cave to my emotional tantrums. So let me jump in, let me jump in there. Thank you for bringing up that story. Even though I'm supposed to be reading Genesis 24. Right? Let me tell you something. Let me, let me say something. Uh, this, this, is, this is good. Um, submission to authority is never an issue of self-worth. That's what we make it. That if I'm asked to clean this toilet, it makes me less of a man, less of a woman. I am beyond this. But notice what Jesus said. Notice what Jesus said. Notice what Jesus said. In John 13, 14, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your stanky feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Notice Jesus is the very son of God. And he's sitting at a table of his mentees, his protégés. In Middle Eastern culture, the lowest person on the totem pole was responsible for washing feet. So yes. They, they came in the house, and everybody, you know, flossing, 
The first thing that should have happened was before they even ate, their feet should have been washed. But nobody did it. So they eat this meal. Notice Jesus is in the final days of his life on earth. His ministry is wrapping up. He's sitting at a table where one of the guys is about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, the going rate for a Hebrew slave. He's sitting at the table where another guy, another guy at the table is going to deny him three times. He's also dealing with the emotional magnitude of the fact that he's about to go to the cross. And he's sitting there and said, well, nobody washed nobody's feet yet. I guess I'm going to do it. And he got down, took a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. Now, even before, I should have read this verse right here. And we're going we're gonna to wrap up here in a second. But John chapter 13. He says, if I then, your Lord, washed your feet, you should do the same for one another. For one another. Even if it means cleaning a DSW bathroom. Even if it means coming and setting up here in the morning as Shannon and a few other guys do and Cedric and the kids do. If I washed your feet, go do it for somebody else. So, so my, my passion for City Church is not that necessarily I'd be a huge mega church. More than anything, I want us to be a healthy church. And if I say I follow Jesus and I'm unwilling to wash feet, there's a problem with how I walk. Is he truly Lord of my life if I'm not willing to follow him in washing somebody else's feet? And I'm not talking about literally if that's what it takes, but whatever it takes to serve somebody. And let me tell you why Jesus was able to do it. John chapter 13, John chapter 13, just put John chapter 13 verse 1. I'm having trouble finding it. John chapter 13 verse 1, John chapter 13 verse 1, John chapter 13 verse 1. Listen to this. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew he was going to die. But he still had the presence of mind, y'all, to wash his disciples' feet. He wasn't saying, oh, man, I'm about to die. Y'all come around me and pray for me. Oh, y'all help me go to the cross. I'm about to die. He knew his hour had come. And he knew that he was about to depart from this world to the Father. Listen to what it says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Yeah. You know what that means? He loved Judas to the end. He loved Peter to the end. When it came down to it, the only person of those 12 guys that he had invested his life in that stayed with him all the way to the cross was John the Beloved. All 11 of these guys abandoned him. Jesus knew that they would betray him. They would deny him and they would abandon him, but he loved them to the end. The reason you should be able to serve somebody is because of love. And notice, notice, not just love, notice what verse 2 says. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, listen to this, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Hmm? And that he had come from God and was going to God, got down and washed feet. You know why Jesus was able to wash feet? Not only because he loved those people, but he knew his identity. See, I'm a child of God. Washing your feet doesn't make me less a child of God. That's why he did it. And most of us struggle 
because our identity is wrapped up in what we do. That's why people on Wall Street commit suicide when they lose a million, two million, three million, five million dollars, when they lose the house because their identity is wrapped up in what they have. And if you and I follow Jesus, we have to ask ourselves that question. Where do I derive my identity? I've told Wendy before, man, I was like, baby, I wish I could just spend some time in children's church teaching the kids, man. I would love that. The only reason I'm not in children's church is because I got to be here. Jesus said to the children, I mean to the people, while they were pushing the people away, he said, permit the children to come unto me and forbid them not. And they sat on his lap and he blessed them one by one. Let me tell you about some pastors. We love crowds but hate people. Our prayer for City Church is that we'll not be a church that is fake. And that's the problem with church is our fakeness. And because of our fakeness, we can't get whole. And that's why I'm struggling now because, because anyway, let me stop. Uh, let me stop. <clears throat> so, so last one, last one, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to wrap up. Here's the last one, okay? Serve one another. We said enough about that. Serve one another, okay? Here's the last one, and then we're done. James chapter 5 and verse 16, this is where this exclamation point bookends on this series. Confess your faults to one another. It goes on and says, pray for one another that you may be healed. I wish this scripture had said, confess all your faults to God. I wish the scripture had said, if you got secrets, talk to God about them. That ain't what it said, though. The scripture says, confess your faults one to another. And then notice the response, pray for one another. And then you'll be healed. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody said, uh, after the fact, uh, uh, well, I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to be hurt. Y'all laughing? So, so, so I promise you, this is why I end. I got to say this, and then I'll let y'all go. Okay, so, so here it is. There's a great story about Sally, Johnny, and Grandma. So this little boy named Johnny was given his first slingshot while he was visiting his grandparents with his sister Sally over the summer. Uh, he practiced in the woods for hours, but he could never hit his target. So one day as he came back to Grandma's backyard, he spotted her beloved pet duck. Target practice, y'all. He saw grandma's beloved pet duck. So on an impulse, he took aim and let fly. <laughs> the stone hit the duck square in the head, and grandma's precious duck fell dead. So Johnny panicked, and desperately he hid the dead duck in the woodpile, only to look up and see his sister Sally watching. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Sally had seen it all, but she said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes, baby. Y'all know how big Mama do. Sally, can I help me with these dishes, baby? 
But Sally said, oh, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? Come on, somebody. Y'all see, see Sally, how Sally working this thing? And then she whispered to him, remember the duck. So guess what Johnny did? Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandpa said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help me make supper. So Sally smiled and said, oh, 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 uh, Grandpa, that's all taken care of. Johnny wants to do it. Don't you, Johnny? Again, she whispered, remember the duck. And Johnny stayed home while Sally went fishing. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, he finally couldn't stand it. He confessed to Grandma that he'd killed the duck. <laughs> Notice Grandma's response. She said, I know, Johnny, and gave him a hug. I was standing at the window and saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. But I wondered how long you would let Sally make a servant out of you. Let me, 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 let me just tell you, I'm going to go fast. Point number one, why confession is good for the soul. Point number one, give it to me. I put my phone down, Kelly, give it to me. Point number one, confession is the antidote for guilt and shame. It's the antidote for guilt and shame. If you're struggling with guilt over something you've done, if you're struggling with shame over something you've done, the antidote is confession. Because Satan is a lot like Sally. The scripture calls him the accuser of the brethren. And he will call you by your shame. The, the, in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, David talks about how his bones wasted away when he held in his transgression. Guilt and shame is a weight that's too heavy for anybody to carry any longer. It will eat you up. There are emotional disorders that create physical disease that people are battling with for that simple reason. Sally saw me do something, and she's using it against me. When the scripture says confess your faults one to another, it's because God sees, knows that confession is the antidote for guilt and shame. Number two, confession is the gateway to freedom and victory over whatever has you bound. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. Let's park it right there. Let it just sit right there for a second. The reason confession and talking about our struggles is important is because they say, if I cover it up, I ain't going to prosper. Oh, but whoever confesses and forsakes, you talk about it and turn away from it, you will find the mercy of God. Third reason is because confession, horizontally, I ain't just talking about vertically, horizontally. Say, so, yeah, well, I'll talk to God about it. No, that's not what the scripture says. Yes, you can talk to God about it. But John 5, 16 says, confess your faults one to another. 
Pray for one another that you may be healed. This is where it close. Confession empowers us to live, what? Number one, authentically. If I come to someone and tell them, this is my struggle. This is my shortcoming. This is my fault. When I do that, I no longer have to wear a mask. All of our sin thrives in secrecy. It gets stronger the more you keep it under wraps. It will allow you, it will give you the freedom to, you will just live free like a weight. We met with a couple recently and uh, he said the same thing. See, I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to be hurt, but that thing ate him up day after day after day after day. And then when he finally said what happened, the weight fell off his shoulders. So for the confessor, it brings you into a place where now you can live truthfully without hypocrisy. Now, there's, a, there's something here that you got to, don't miss it. I'm about, I promise you I'm about to wrap up. The confessor speaks to the person who's on the hearing end. My confession will also do something in Wendy. It will prompt her now to respond compassionately. Listen to this now. The reason most of us don't tell other people about our struggle is because we're afraid of what their response will be. But confession is not only for the person doing the confession, it's also for the person hearing the confession to deal with their own judgment, to deal with their own legalism, to deal with their own unforgiveness. Because when I confess, the biblical response from Wendy is to pray for me. Not to cuss me out, not to stab me, not to kill me. Listen, listen to this. The response when I confess, when you confess to someone else, is that the person on the other end responds with prayer. Confession doesn't only benefit the person confessing. It prompts this person who is hearing the confession to forgive. And notice what the scripture says. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And I promise you this is where I close. That word you is plural. It's not the person doing a confession is healed. The person confessing is healed. And the person hearing the confession is also healed. Because they now deal with their, their, their anger. They deal with unforgiveness. They deal with judgment. And both parties are healed simultaneously. And I'm glad you brought that out. Some, some things that are confessed, they will be hurtful. They will make you angry. You can feel a sense of betrayal. There are so many emotions you can have, and that'll be a process to work through those emotions. But the godly response is to pray for them, pray for you. Realize that, you know what? I'm not a perfect person. I've messed up too. And this is a hard lesson to learn depersonalize someone else's sin unless somebody or missing the mark unless somebody comes up and says you know what Kia I woke up this morning with you on my mind and I decided hmm today was a good day for me to break Kia's heart let me see how I can just ruin her world I don't know anybody who's ever heard that because when you are offended by another's actions they haven't gotten up that morning and thought about how they could break your heart 
what has happened if they gotten up that morning and thought about me, 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 me. What can I do to make me feel good? And they've not considered the impact on you. And so when you hear something, you just need to kind of just stop. You don't have to react right then. And you can say with eyebrows lifted, this is hard for me to hear. I'm going to have to get back with you. And then you deal through it. But the Bible says that those of you who are spiritual, when you find one in a fault, those of you that are spiritually mature, you restore them gently. Restore them gently. Yes, can there be some boundaries in certain situations? Absolutely. But those of us that are the spiritually mature, exercising that grace and mercy that we so need. So don't hear us saying that you're just supposed to receive this whatever kind of news and then you're going, oh, I'm going to go pray. We have to work through our human response. It is, oh, the Bible says be angry and sin not. You, you have the right sometimes to be angry. But the sin comes in when I take a, 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 someone's misstep, not make, mix, making them art. I can't believe you did this to me. Nope, they didn't actually do it to you. Because if they are in an actual sin, that's a breach between them and their relationship with God. They got way bigger issues than you. That was a hard lesson for me to swallow. It, it, it wasn't about you did this to me. As I have grown up, it's like, wow, that's something. If you can do this thing, then that's something. Even people might not think cussing somebody else out is a big deal. If you can fix your mouth to cuss somebody out, I mean, just lay them out no matter. That's something between you and God. Some things you should have some restraining grace where you're just like, God, I'm not going to go there. You go get a pillow, scream, you know, something, do some jumping jacks, leave the house, maybe eat some ice cream, whatever works. But you can be angry, but sin not. When we get into the flesh, then there's, it has to do with thinking. We believe that, okay, I can do this. I'm justified in doing this. And then that we, we have to have walk in a reverence for God. If I do this thing, when David fell with Bathsheba, the prophet said, because you've done this wicked, evil thing, you've caused unbelievers to blaspheme the name of the Lord most high. So our responses as believers, the word says, how will we know them? Jesus said, you'll know them by their love. That is the mark of us, is to be able to forgive and to forget, we believe the lie of the world. I'm, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. It's not forgiveness if you don't forget. And you may have to, it says daily, pick up your cross. You may have to daily lay that thing down. When it comes back to you, you might have to audibly say, I do not receive that. I'm walking in forgiveness. And you may not, forgiveness, you don't ever feel like you've forgiven. But you will wake up one day and be free. When you have to process and keep laying that thing down, you're not going to ever, oh, I feel like I've forgiven you because something could trigger it again. But freedom is guaranteed. It is a money back guarantee according to the word. Amen. Good stuff. Did that help anybody this morning? Awesome. 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 Fantastic. Why don't we pray as we close out this series? And, um, but thank you. Thank you for allowing us to share this message with you. This morning we want to pray. Uh, and as we close this series, we really do want to pray that as a church, we would.